Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. My guest today is an economist who focuses on labor economics, intergenerational mobility, disadvantaged families, the role of anti-poverty programs, and a whole lot more. Bradley Hardy is the Oaken Modell Fellow in Economic Studies and an Associate Professor in the School of Public Affairs at American University. He joins me in the studio today to discuss some of the issues that he's been focused on recently, including the relationship between past segregation and modern-day economic mobility, as well as new evidence on the predictors of social welfare program participation. Stay tuned in this episode to hear from Molly Reynolds on what's happening in Congress and what she expects to happen in Congress after its recess is over. From congressional reaction to the violence in Charlottesville to a number of important legislative deadlines coming up, Molly covers it all. You can get the latest show information by following the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. And now on with the interview. Bradley, welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria. Fred, I'm happy to be here and happy to talk about some of this research. Last time we met, you were introducing yourself to our listeners in our Coffee Break segment. Can you reacquaint us with your background and what the Oaken Modell Fellowship year has been? Well, it's been a terrific year just to be in economic studies at Brookings. And so the Oaken Modell Fellowship has been a nice opportunity for academic economists like myself and others in the past since the 1980s to really come into Brookings, focus on our own research that will just inevitably really overlap with the interests of those in ES, economic studies, and to sort of benefit from being around those scholars and then also bringing our expertise onto the floor, so to speak. So in economic studies, bringing our, you know, bringing our ideas. So it's been a nice year, and I've been able to advance a couple of interesting projects, two of which I hope to speak with you and your listeners about. Excellent. And I understand that you've just recently been promoted to associate professor yes. in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Congrats. Thanks for that. And so that happened during this past academic school year. So very excited and I'm really excited about the work we're doing at American University. And one other thing about your background that we actually have in common, I looked at your CV and you have a master's degree in public policy from Georgetown University, and I do as well. Oh, yes. Wonderful. Uh, Very cool. Mine's a little bit older vintage than yours, but uh, it was a good program. So you were part of the GPPI world then? Uh, It it was just transitioning from the Georgetown Public Policy Program to the Georgetown Public Policy Institute. Yes, yes. Uh, Now uh, now we're McCourt alumni, I guess. I've not determined whether or not I can call myself a McCourt alum or... I just keep uh, the institute on there. The McCourt School of Public Policy. Right. Uh, Well, it's come a long way. It used to be a certificate program in one of the colleges at Georgetown, and now it's a fully endowed, named School of Public Policy. So congratulations to them for their great work. And among other great professors at Georgetown, our non-resident fellow, Harry Holzer. He was one of my favorite professors at Georgetown, and He's still cranking away, doing some great stuff. Well, one of my favorite professors was our own Bill Gale. Oh, yeah. Wow. I didn't know Bill was mm -hmm. teaching over there. Senior fellow in economic studies, one of your colleagues over there. And he's been on this podcast a couple times to talk about tax issues, tax reform. Bill's great. So shout out to Bill Gale. Yeah. Yeah. Bill's great. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the research that you have been doing since you've been here. And I know you'll continue to be doing. And one of them, something you've called evidence on the predictors of social welfare participation. Can you just kind of give us a high line view of what that means, what is social welfare participation? Sure. No, Fred, this is a great question. And so, you know, really our motivation in this research project was to sort of, first of all, characterize what 
the nation's social safety net looks like for low-income families, either poor families or families that are pretty near the poverty line. And so many people think about, you know, welfare programs as being cash welfare. So that would have been aid to families with dependent children throughout the 80s through the early 90s, and then the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families program after welfare reform in 1996. So a lot of people think of welfare as that program, but really welfare is much broader. And food stamps, for example, are really a super important part of thinking about the nation's safety net for low-income families, as well as refundable earned income tax credits. So really, the uh, EITC, as it's referred to, is now the largest cash safety net program in the nation. So it really does overwhelm TANF in terms of the size of cash benefit that a typical poor family could receive. And so we're really thinking about and discussing in this paper the cash welfare program TANF, sort of the classic cash welfare program, but we're also talking about SNAP and the earned income tax credit. SNAP being the food Excuse stamp me. program. Th- that's right. That's right. SNAP is Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. Doesn't really roll off the tongue. So food stamps or SNAP along with the earned income tax credit. And so importantly, I, I would just say that because of really a decline in participation in traditional cash welfare after 1996, um, participation overall, and then a decline in the size of the cash benefit, really many social policy researchers and sort of poverty researchers have come to think of TANF as a, a really unresponsive program, unresponsive in the sense that during economic downturns, during periods of high unemployment, that program hasn't really responded, you know, in a countercyclical way the way food stamps have. And so for that reason, we actually focus more on the food stamp program and on earned income tax credits. Let me ask you as another background question, why was there a decline in cash welfare after 1996? I know that was the big year of welfare reform. Yeah. You know, some of it, there's been quite a bit of research trying to answer that question, right? And so if I were to quickly characterize the evidence, I would say that in part, it was a really strong macroeconomy that really provided job opportunities for people in a way that was almost historically unprecedented. I mean, the mid to late 90s economic boom was just quite substantial. And so concurrent with this, you also had very intentional policy to move welfare participants off of the welfare roles and into that very strong labor market. And so then, you know, policymakers then boosted access to food stamps or SNAP as we're calling it. So there were sort of in-kind or near-cash supports for these working families amid a very strong labor market. And so what you saw in part was that TANF policy was probably a success in the mid to late 90s. But when we had recessions first in the early 2000s and then the Great Recession, unfortunately, we saw that TANF didn't backfill income for these families. TANF didn't really serve as a buffer for these low-income families, as it once had in the 80s, for example. So why not? It didn't perform the same function that welfare assistance used to. By design of welfare reform, one of the focal points and the goals is to move families off of the program and into the labor market. And it seems that the policy design really wasn't built for families to move back onto the welfare rolls easily. Now, some states have 
sort of reversed that trend. And so there's quite a bit of devolution of authority to the states in welfare reform. So some states were probably better than others at moving citizens back onto the welfare rolls. But in large part, among other things, the states were now operating under a block grant design. And so there were a lot of financial incentives, for example, from many states to simply keep people off those welfare rolls and really operate off that same cash block grant. Sometimes states would actually use the money to plug other budget holes, a term called supplantation. So, you know, some of the incentives were there for states maybe not to take these people back in. And so, you know, this has been the subject of some really interesting Hamilton Project reports, thinking about the 20th anniversary of welfare reform, you know, ways in which we could think about tweaking the system, tweaking welfare to be more effective. Well, TANF by name is temporary, temporary That's assistance. Right. That's exactly families. right. You use the term countercyclical, which I know is an economist term, but let me see <laughs> if I understand it. The cycle being the economy goes down, as we saw starting 10 years ago with the beginning of the Great Recession. So as the economy goes down, the need of people to have income assistance goes up. So you're trying to counter the cycle of the economy going south. Yeah, Fred, that's exactly right. And I think that an area of agreement among many policymakers and social scientists is the idea that the safety net, so to speak, this whole battery of government programs to assist folks, you know, be it food stamps, be it cash welfare, or even unemployment insurance, the idea is that people oftentimes through no fault of their own face these events in the labor market. Maybe there's a plant closure. Maybe there's some sort of health event or shock. And that, you know, these are basically forms of insurance that should be able to buffer against those sorts of losses or events. And that at the same time, if folks are able-bodied and are capable of going into the labor market, we should give folks every opportunity and incentive to do so. I think that where a lot of the disagreement occurred, if we're looking back into the sort of mid-90s during welfare reform, was sort of around issues related to time limits. So one of the very popular policy features of welfare reform was that there's a federal five-year time limit that welfare recipients have to receive benefits. States can use their own money to sort of allow for, you know, participation beyond five years. But again, those incentives are such that many states won't do that. And so there was quite a bit of disagreement about whether or not, you know, five years is sort of an arbitrary cutoff for folks who might experience all sorts of disruptions. Um, And then it also raises interesting issues about, you know, different people who have uh, barriers to work, physical and mental health barriers, for example. I want to put a pin in that issue of five years because it relates to what I'm thinking about now, which is 10 years ago, we started seeing the signs of the Great Recession. Mm -hmm. Our colleague David Wessel just was talking about that this week. And in the aftermath of the Great Recession, millions of jobs evaporated from the U.S. economy. So it's talking about the labor market, the labor market trunk. And so how much of a factor is TANF's performance related to the fact that there just weren't jobs? for a lot of the people who maybe were on that program? Well, you know, I'm going to say that it's related, but sort of in a way that you're describing, I'll put it to you another way. It was really interesting to see that basically from 2000 to 2012, and this was something that, you know, I looked at with my co-authors, Jim Ziliak and Tim Smeeting. We found that, look, from 2000 to 2012, you know, spending on food stamps grew by something like 290%. You know, spending on the EITC grew about 60 percent. 
And at the same time, over that period, TANF spending was basically declining. And so what you saw, if you sort of took a plot of the recessions over the 2000s, so that early 2000s recession during the Bush years and then the Great Recession, you saw that, in fact, the food stamp spending jumped up. And so that's what we would expect. Okay, you know, the economy's doing worse, poverty increases, people are out of work at a higher rate, food stamps kick in. And then likewise, to the degree that many people found themselves in lower wage work, we found that the refundable earned income tax credit program was supplementing or sort of subsidizing those low-wage job opportunities. So it was really troubling to see for many observers and social scientists, it was troubling to see that the TANF program did not actually provide what you would think of as that temporary assistance that you might expect when the economic need grew. And so I think this is where you have folks, including Jim Ziliak, including Hillary Hoynes and Marion Bittler, who've written some interesting pieces for the Hamilton Project, thinking about how to reform not just TANF, but SNAP as well. When you look at the performance of these programs as an economist, as a social scientist, what are the indicators of success? How would you know if TANF was a successful social welfare program over that span of time? You know, I think in general, and we did not look at this in our paper, but you might look at, one, whether or not the policy change is associated with a decline in the poverty rate. You might also look at whether employment rates rise. And so you also could expand that to think about a whole array of, you know, health outcomes and things like that. I mean, this is why actually the assessment of TANF really has to be conducted sort of sequentially over time, as well as the success and evaluation of other programs like SNAP food stamps and EITC. So to put it more bluntly, TANF was seen as a success from about the mid-90s through the early 2000s because employment rates really did rise dramatically among many poor families. Likewise, poverty rates fell. Taking a look back, it turned out that much of the the explanation for this you know, decline in poverty, much of the explanation for this rise in employment rates, which are all great things, is what we want to see, much of that was really due to a strong macroeconomy. And so what you saw then was that as the economy declined, you know, it was harder to attribute the success solely to the policy. And in fact, the policy didn't seem to be as responsive as we might like it to be. I put a pin in that TANF five-year limit a minute ago because it it put me in mind of where we are today. Ten years after the beginnings of the Great Recession, our colleagues in the Hamilton Project have uh, just put out a new report on the jobs gap. Since 2010, they've been looking at how many jobs would it take to return to the pre-recession level of employment accounting for population growth and aging, people aging out of the labor market. And they said in July of 2017 – that the jobs gap has now been closed, accounting for those demographic factors. So at the same time that the unemployment rate is about as low as it's been in 10 or more years, how would an economist, a social scientist now look at evidence about poverty, welfare use, TANF success, these kind of questions that you've been looking at now that we've crossed this line into a, a new era? I think this is a great question. And so the jobs gap analysis is super interesting because it really does 
help us to understand that a simple statistic like, say, the unemployment rate alone doesn't really give us a full barometer of the health of the economy. It's probably the most popularly used statistic to kind of think about the economic health of the nation. But at the same time, it's sort of akin to going to the doctor and maybe they take your weight. And so I'm sensitive to this because it seems like every year it gets a little bit harder to lose weight and a lot easier to gain weight. But that one number, because I'm not getting any taller, uh, that one number is a useful indicator. But there's other stuff. There's blood pressure. You know, there's, you know, different levels of cholesterol. And so accordingly, you know, in the economy, we are really concerned about, yes, the unemployment rate, but just the actual sort of level of jobs relative to the past. This then relates to issues such as whether people are leaving the labor force altogether. They just sort of stopped looking. This sort of thing gets obscured in the unemployment statistics. And so, no, I think this is a really important benchmark to think about because it means our recovery has been slow. It's been a slow recovery. To me, this also raises related questions about wage growth. And so that's not explicitly what they're looking at in the Hamilton sort of jobs gap analysis. But one, it took a while for us to get back to a pre-recession level of employment. Two, there's an interesting question about the nature of the jobs that were being produced. And so I don't want to characterize this as, you know, sort of uniform agreement in the economics profession, but there is this challenge of jobs being produced at sort of the low wage end of the economy, and then another set of jobs being produced at sort of the college degree holding end of the labor market. In other words, you have an increasingly hollowed out economy where it's maybe a little bit more challenging to find more sort of classic middle skill jobs, more blue collar jobs that might pay sort of a decent wage with benefits. It's not that those jobs don't exist, but they're not as numerous as they once were. The skill set needed is a bit more complicated. And so, you know, some of the work I've done has been to think about how to reform programs like TANF to try to address these changing economic circumstances. What recommendations would you have for reforming programs like TANF and the other social welfare programs? I'd say as far as reforming TANF, I think that we could really think about broader education and training as counting under what TANF calls these work-related activities. So the TANF program is going to say that you know TANF recipients need to be engaged in a particular set of activities while they are looking for work. And so it could actually just be going into a job center and actually you know, showing that they're searching for employment opportunities. But there also are some sort of training programs that can count. Now, this is sensible policy because we know that there's all sorts of jobs where you might need anywhere from a few weeks to a few months or maybe even a year's worth of training to be ready to go. And so you know, I've recommended that we need to do better connecting TANF recipients to you know, training opportunities within local community colleges. This is a very wonkish off-ramp here, but... This is the uh, wonky, wonky podcast. <laughs> this is a wonky podcast, right? So, so there's the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act, and this is run out of the Labor Department. And so these are offices that basically are sort of one-stop shops to help uh, job seekers understand where local labor market opportunities lie. As it turns out, the typical TANF office doesn't have as much communication with these so-called WIOA offices as we might like. And so I've just proposed that 
TANF could sort of reimagine itself as providing greater cash assistance and greater support for working families. The modal category would be a working mom with a kid who really want to get sort of additional training. So thinking about cash assistance while you're engaged and maybe a longer-term training program. The Labor Department piece in the connection would be that these are offices that have a good sense for where the local demand is. So it's difficult to say, you know, as a nation, we're going to push people towards healthcare or water and sewer. That may not be where the jobs are in Fayetteville, North Carolina, for example, versus, you know, South Dakota. And so really thinking again about the idea that, yes, you can have temporary assistance, but that temporary assistance could maybe even stop the clock on this five-year time limit. And it really could provide greater cash assistance for those families that are trying to stop and upgrade their skills. So that's probably the biggest recommendation I've made. Kind of other things that are really kind of piggybacking off of the great ideas I've read about and just sort of putting them together, you know, thinking about really beefing up the cash assistance and maybe even creating some requirements that states, you know, sort of spend something on the order of, you know, a quarter to a third of their block grant on cash assistance. You know, if you were to look at a map, and I looked at this map from the Hamilton reports that I've read on the matter, and I think this was by Marianne Bittler and Hillary Hoynes, they show that some states are spending not even 10% of their TANF block grant on cash assistance. So many of your listeners think about welfare as being cash, and I think there's lots of misconceptions about what poor families have access to. You know, today's welfare, for the most part, doesn't provide much in the order of cash assistance. There's a really troubling statistic that prior to welfare reform, you had something like 7 in 10 poor families in America receiving some welfare. And so now I think you have something like, you know, maybe 2 in 10. And so these families don't have access to these benefits. This has been actually the subject of work by Luke Schaefer and Kathy Eden. And so they've characterized this as so-called $2 a day poverty and sort of puzzling on how these families are are getting by. If it's not cash assistance, then what form of assistance is it? Well, we know that these families are more likely to be on food stamps. And then the real troubling piece is that this is a subset of families that Eden and Schaefer examine that are also facing a whole variety of work barriers, employment barriers. Nobody has a problem if these folks are able to sort of find and, and sort of hold a steady job. I think the concern is that These are folks who are potentially out of work and out of welfare. What are they doing? And and I think that's actually an open question. It's a puzzle. Some people might be working off the table. You know, you can think about cutting hair, mowing lawns, things like that. So maybe it's not sort of official, you know, taxable income. But, you know, that's a conjecture on my part. I, I think that the reality is that some folks are probably just facing some hard times. And on the other hand, we're still trying to learn more about, you know, how people are making those ends meet. So if listeners wanted to read this paper? How would they find it? Well, so there's a couple of pieces. Some of the policy recommendations that I've sort of discussed here with you are housed at equitablegrowth.org. And so I, I wrote a policy brief for them several months back. And I think it was actually um, the fall of 2016. I think they still have that up. The work looking at the predictors of SNAP and EITC participation is actually housed on my own website, bradleyhardy.com. That work, again, that's co-authored with Timothy Smeeting at the University of Wisconsin-Madison 
and James Ziliak at the University of Kentucky. That work is forthcoming at the journal Demography. It won't be out probably until the end of this year or early 2018, but that's housed at BradleyHardy.com. What is the top-level finding of this paper? So first off, we really want to examine whether structural economic factors such as employment, the transition into more part-time work, wages and the level of wages, those sorts of structural factors explain greater, quote-unquote, welfare participation. Again, this is SNAP and, you know, EITC, food stamps and earned income tax credit benefits. We want to understand whether those structural economic factors are a big component of why people are on welfare. So, again, that maybe they're on welfare because the economy's weak. We want to compare that to whether it's actually intentional policy expansions. So the idea being that states, for example, can make it easier or harder to get onto these programs in the first place. And so some of the rise in welfare participation, broadly speaking, could just be that states are trying to make it easier for folks to get on. That's not necessarily a bad thing. You have this benefit. If people are eligible, you want them to receive the benefit. And then third, there's been much discussion in the social sciences over the years about the role of demographic factors. And probably the most popular one would be you know, the degree to which there's a you know, decline in marriage and a rise in sort of single-parent family formation. You know, does that demographic factor explain welfare participation? How do these three factors, the structure of the economy, policy expansion, and demographics like family structure, how do these three things sort of explain welfare participation? Which of the three are the most dominant factors Look, with that, Fred, we find that it's really policy expansion. And so maybe the least sexy of all, that it's just that states are trying to make their welfare system a bit more accessible and that there are a set of intentional policies. It could be everything from making sure that asset limits don't keep people off of food stamp benefits. It could be making sure that people who are qualified for TANF are then automatically qualified for food stamp benefits as well so that people don't have to go and fill out multiple applications, things like that. We also, however, in some alternative runs, find that the large economic shocks of the 2000s, the structural factors, flat wages, for example, part-time work for many people, those sorts of structural economic factors are a big, big reason why people find themselves to be on food stamps, and on EITC. Importantly, our analysis, it's worth emphasizing, is looking at families who find themselves to be on these programs for two years at a time. And so a lot of our emphasis is also thinking about the degree to which this is a longer-term factor for these families, that it's not as transitory or brief, that they're finding themselves, for example, maybe to be working with these benefits. I think that Really importantly here, the narrative on sort of EITC and food stamps really reminds us that the safety net in general has changed to be more of a work-based safety net. And so the narrative around how people come to receive welfare should really be moving towards thinking about the working poor. There's an imagery sometimes about the individual who's out of work and on welfare benefits that person still exists, but very increasingly, 
These are the people who are participating in our economy. Many of the people who are supporting our firms, working to help us out every day, they're receiving these benefits because they're really working at the poverty line. And now, here's Molly Reynolds on what's happening in Congress. My name is Molly Reynolds, and I'm a fellow in the Governance Studies Program at the Brookings Institution. Congress is currently in the third week of its annual August recess, where members return to their states and districts, often holding town halls and otherwise meeting with constituents. The Washington Post reports that only about 20% of House Republicans are actually holding town halls this August, but being out of Washington has not meant that they can avoid having to comment on President Trump's statements on a range of events, including his threats against North Korea, his criticism of Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, and most recently, the white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. What Republican members of Congress say and do publicly in response to the events in Charlottesville generally and to Trump's reaction to them specifically, matters for its own sake. What they say and do is a reflection of their own views as cue-giving party elites on racial issues. It's also a signal of their willingness or unwillingness, as the case may be, to stand up to a president of their own party on a fundamental moral issue. Indeed, we should be paying attention to the reactions for those reasons alone. But when Congress returns from its recess in September, it has several potentially chaotic weeks of legislating ahead of it, and the president's standing with the public and in relation to Congress, both of which may be affected by Charlottesville, can influence exactly how those deliberations play out. The high-profile issues with firm and consequential deadlines facing Congress are several. Raising the debt ceiling, avoiding a partial government shutdown, and addressing the expirations of key federal programs like the Children's Health Insurance Program, the Federal Flood Insurance Program, and the Federal Aviation Administration. Trump has never been well-positioned to help Congress get to legislative agreement, both because of his lack of legislative experience and because of his low approval ratings. More popular presidents have more political capital that they can use to try and get members of Congress to take positions the legislators might otherwise avoid. Trump's overall approval rating remains low, and some recent polls show declines among voters of his own party as well. This makes his inability to help address legislative disputes within his own party worse, not better. This could affect congressional Republicans' ability to address the most pressing of its September issues, the debt ceiling. Historically, votes in Congress on raising the debt ceiling have followed an opposition versus governing party pattern. Members of Congress from the party that controls the White House have been more likely to vote for an increase than legislators from the out party, in part because they want to avoid being blamed for the negative economic consequences that would result from inaction. Prior to the congressional recess, both Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin and Office of Management and Budget Director Mick Mulvaney called for a clean debt limit increase. Some rank-and-file Republicans, however, object to the idea of raising the debt ceiling without some sort of corresponding spending cuts. A weak president may make it more difficult for those legislators to be persuaded to take one for the team, only increasing the chances that Republican leaders in Congress will have to rely on Democrats to carry a debt ceiling increase over the finish line. Consider also two other items that are likely to be flashpoints in congressional negotiations over a must-pass spending bill to keep the federal government open past October 1st, funding for certain payments to insurers under the Affordable Care Act, and money for a wall along the southern border. 
The payments are seen by Democrats and some Republicans as a key move necessary to stabilize Obamacare's individual marketplaces after Republicans' failure to enact repeal and replace legislation. Trump, understanding that the payments are a lever over which he has control, has repeatedly threatened to stop making them. The wall is one of Trump's few identifiable legislative priorities for the year, but Democrats firmly oppose allocating the money. The support of at least eight Senate Democrats is necessary to clear the closely divided chamber, and the votes of some House Democrats may be needed to overcome opposition from some House conservatives to any measure that can clear a filibuster threat in the upper chamber. The desire for what Trump perceives as a legislative win in the face of low approval ratings could cause him to dig in further on each of these positions, complicating Congress's task of avoiding a partial government shutdown. Congress does not legislate in a vacuum, and broader political events can affect the context in which the chamber tries to get its work done. When Congress returns after Labor Day, we will see exactly how that dynamic plays out in what's sure to be an eventful month. And that's what will be happening in Congress. Let's switch gears to sure, uh, another absolutely. topic. Yeah. And the other topic is how past segregation may predict modern-day economic mobility. A lot of terms in there that I'd like you to define. So when you say past segregation, what are we talking about there? Well, this research study is really the result of new innovations in data access. And so this is the sort of thing that would put a lot of people to sleep late at night, just sort of talking about data access and secondary data access. I think it gets more interesting when you think about the sorts of questions you can answer. And so the historical racial segregation we examine, believe it or not, actually comes from as far back as 1880. The data. The data. The actual data. And this is census data from as far back as 1880 as well as 1940. Our co-author on the project, and I should say, This is work with Rodney Andrews at the University of Texas at Dallas, Marcus Casey at the University of Illinois at Chicago, and Trevon Logan in the Department of Economics at Ohio State University. And so I should say that Trevon Logan and his co-author John Parman, they developed this measure of historical racial segregation. And what they were able to do is use newly available census data from the late 1800s and early 1900s The basic idea is this. The census enumerators were going door to door back then and asking citizens just a battery of basic questions and they were recording race. And in fact, you know, race in this country was also pretty simple to record back then. We weren't nearly as racially diverse. And so for the most part, people were either white or black. And so what you ended up getting was this neighbor-based data set. So you knew people were going down the street and marking white or black, so on and so forth. And so Logan and Parman really ended up constructing this sort of neighbor-based measure of racial segregation. The idea being that, you know, they could quantify the degree to which people were more likely to live next to households of same or different race. And so they were able to do this at a very geographically small unit of analysis, really at the sort of the city, county level, and then blocks within those areas. And so this is sort of a very powerful data point, but that's only one part. There's a whole second part that we're able to bring in as well. That's fascinating for a lot of reasons. As a personal side note, I'm a genealogist. I love studying the United States census, Mm -hmm. and I have 
I did not know at, that about you. I have looked at many. <laughs> I have looked at every census I could find for all of my ancestors going back to 1790. And, and I'm sure that your fellow researchers in this are as sad about the loss of the 1890 census as we genealogists are. It was uh, consumed in a fire in the 1920s, I believe. Wow. The Commerce Department. Thought. So I actually did not know that. I mean, this is where, you know, collaboration sort of matters quite a bit because, you know, Logan and Parman are really top flight economic historians. And I was sort of amazed that we've digitized some of this stuff, period, right? And But it's a sad thing to know that we had that and lost it. Yeah. It's an incredible trove of data. And I guess, I don't know if we can call it big data now, but God, I mean, right. you're, you've got the socioeconomic, demographic, residential data on hundreds of millions of Americans over the course yeah. of, you know, yeah. decades. It's quite impressive. And, you know, that rich data in our exercise is then sort of paired with a data set that was constructed by a research team, you know, really led by Raj Chetty, but it includes, you know, scholars like Nathaniel Hendren, Patrick Klein, and Emmanuel Saez. But there's a whole set of researchers, probably too numerous to name, that have really embarked upon this ambitious work to think about what we refer to as sort of contemporary intergenerational mobility. And all I mean by that is in a more modern contemporary sense, if we just use me as an example, how do I fare with respect to my earnings and income in adulthood relative to how my parents fared at a similar stage? This is a really big topic for economists because one of the key tenets of American society is that we're a land of opportunity. And I think that there's a pretty safe bet, and you see this in our political discourse, that families hope that their kids do better than they did eventually. And so economists have taken on this question and thought about the different factors and determinants of some families sort of rising up the economic ladder over time, other families sort of staying stagnant, and then other families that maybe do worse over time. You know, why is that the case? What are the different factors determining that? And so Chetty and his research team, they were able to assemble a very rich localized data set, essentially where they were able to determine the link between moving up or down the economic ladder and where you actually live. Does the measure of relative intergenerational mobility take into account inheritance, intergenerational transfer of wealth? I would say yes and no. I think that commentators on this absolutely account for the role of inheritances, wealth, networks, connections, your own drive and initiative. I mean, there's so many things that are difficult to control for in some sort of secondary data analysis. You know, you just see these data points that say Jake and his wife had this particular family income. Mary and her husband go on to have this particular family income. What's that statistical relationship? Uh, you know, and, and as an aside, I can say that much of the work that Richard Reeves has engaged in economic studies has really thought about and considered intergenerational mobility. And, you know, much of the focus of his Dream Hoarders book has been thinking about, you know, this concept of, again, mobility across generations. How's that transmitted? And so there's probably no one factor. Richard has been on this podcast to talk about Dream Hoarders. He's also been on to talk about his other research on yeah. economic mobility. And he wrote a great Brookings essay a couple of years ago about the American dream. So I commend yeah. all of those to listeners. So when you talk about the relationship between past segregation, 
which we can understand through all this data set coming out of the census and I'm sure other data. How does that relate to our understanding of modern day economic mobility? Yeah. So, I mean, I'll start off by talking a bit more about the modern day measures. Some of your listeners might have even recalled from a few years ago that the New York Times created this interesting, um, they call them infographics, but basically there was a map you could hover over. And what you would see was that in a very small sort of geographic unit, maybe even at the county level, you'd see that someone in the, the Durham County, North Carolina area was more or less likely to move up the economic ladder relative to their parents, more or less likely than, say, someone in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And then you might compare that to Atlanta, Georgia. And so what you saw in general was that the southeastern part of America seemed to be, in general, less economically mobile. And in fact, if you were to just sort of overlay that map of mobility with a a map of poverty at the county level, they looked quite a bit similar. And so the result of this research initiative, and again, this was sort of Chetty and co-authors, was sort of thinking about the role of place in determining your economic outcome. You know, I think this is probably intuitive for many of the listeners. You drive to different parts of your own metropolitan area and you sort of observe that, you know, crime seems to be lower or higher. Schools appear to be higher or of lower quality. Amenities, the different things that, you know, kids could go out to do seem to be better or worse. And so I think people have this intuitive sense that different parts of the city seem to be sort of better or worse, more or less desirable for raising kids and for their overall development. So the Chetty team really sort of starts to quantify this in this very rich data set. And so our question is, how can we begin to unpack what this relationship between place and economic mobility really means? I'm now in mind of a New Brookings initiative on race, place, and economic mobility. Right. Camille Bissett yeah. is leading that. She was on the show yeah. in a coffee break recently. And Mm -hmm. so I know that's a huge conversation that's happening in economics and social science and also here at Brookings. So we'll have more of that on this program in future episodes. Yeah. And you know, Fred, we certainly in our project, we're not claiming that we found the silver bullet. But the basic idea is that we want to understand whether or not past racial segregation is really approximating a system of networks, an exclusion and sort of limited opportunity that's sort of approximated for by this measure of racial segregation. And importantly, sociologists have actually found that areas and systems that are sort of exclusionary or restrain the economic mobility of black Americans also were really harmful for many white Americans too. And so you can see where you know, many people get swept up in sort of the downside consequences of, say, um, a locality that really kind of restricts access to high-quality education, for example. And so in our findings, we're basically showing that even after accounting for contemporary segregation, and so this is sort of a popular way to think about the role of, you know, stratification and being sort of isolated, even after controlling for contemporary measures of segregation, we find there's a strong statistical link. Basically, higher past racial segregation predicts lower economic mobility, you know, sort of over 100 years later. And so we want to understand the degree to which 
you know, we're really sort of thinking about these longer-term sort of structural factors. This is why we think the research initiative is important. And so this first set of results is available in economics letters. The paper came out this summer. But we're going to be expanding the research inquiry to really think about some of these sort of larger underlying factors. You know, we really want to understand the degree to which institutions matter, local attitudes matter. Uh, You can imagine localities where the sentiment is that black businesses should be allowed to thrive, black Americans should have uh, greater access to educational opportunities. How much of this variation that we see, how much of this result, which again is pretty stark to see that it holds up, how much of that is explained by, you know, variation there. And so what we hope to do is really add additional data to try to understand this phenomenon a bit better. It sounds like this body of research, these questions, kind of run counter to the very popular ancient American narrative of pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, the kind of thing that Richard Reeves explored in his Horatio Alger-themed essay on the American dream, that you can just, no matter what your circumstances, you can just pull yourself up and succeed in America. And the counter to that is the research that is saying, but wait, there are structural issues, there are historical issues, there are institutions and other kinds of larger forces at work that also have influence on economic mobility. Fred, I think that's absolutely right. I think that there is an important set of stylized facts in the economics profession that we probably glossed over. Basically, that intergenerational mobility is pretty limited in the U.S. And so you have a range of ways you measure intergenerational mobility. Intergenerational mobility can be sort of characterized by the statistical correlation between earnings of, you know, adult offspring relative to parents. Basically, we find that that correlation is very high, very strong. Basically, the idea is that when you think about intergenerational mobility, yeah, you find that mom and dad's earnings really don't necessarily have predictive power uh, for that of the kids if that statistical link is closer to zero. What we find is that that statistical link is closer to one, and a one would mean that how your parents do almost perfectly predicts how you're going to do. And unfortunately, whereas the dominant narrative is that there is no relationship, the actual economic analysis and statistical analysis finds that the opposite is true. No. And this is really across race. This is an important point. This isn't just a black-brown phenomenon. When we look at the secondary data and we pool all the people in the country, we've shown this in administrative data sets. We've shown this in some of the most popular secondary data sets, like the panel study of income dynamics, that the economic link across generations is sort of tied quite tightly. And so this is just sort of a statistical fact. So I think that this is the sort of thing that concerns policymakers. Certainly, this is less concerning if it's that you were rich as a child and you're rich as an adult. The piece that's probably particularly concerning is that people have a hard time moving out of the lower end of the income distribution. And so you start to think about the factors. I think you asked this earlier. What are some of the predictors? You can think about things like access to education. Wealth is going to matter quite a bit. Many people don't have the luxury of taking job opportunities 
that will ultimately lead to sort of higher earnings, higher stability, so on and so forth. I think this is along the lines of some of the stuff Richard talks about in Dream Hoarders, although I'll let him talk about his own book. But it is a sort of costly endeavor for a child from a low-income family to take a very low-paying congressional aid type job or you know job off the hill. Those very same jobs can oftentimes lead to admission to the top law schools. They can lead to very lucrative policy and politics careers. And so these are the sorts of issues that we talk about a bit in the School of Public Affairs at American University and other universities. How can our students have this sort of access to opportunities that are going to lead to great careers, even when initially speaking, it could be an unpaid internship? So in other words, who can get access to those unpaid internships? Kids who come from wealthier families, for example. Well, Bradley, now that you're wrapping up your fellowship year here at Brookings, what's next? So, you know, I'll be back in the classroom teaching economics to the Masters of Public Administration students and the Masters of Public Policy students at AU. I will continue my work looking at economic mobility. I'll continue the work looking at the social safety net. This also includes some local projects examining the earned income tax credit here in Washington, D.C., and thinking about minimum wages here in Washington, D.C. It's really important to note that in the U.S., we've got all these experiments going on within cities and states. And so when we talk about the social safety net, it's a little bit of a misnomer because we've got a whole variety of examples where cities and states are doing things differently. D.C. actually supplements the refundable earned income tax credit and has probably one of the most generous total packages of refundable tax credits in the nation. Likewise, with the minimum wage slated to go to $15 by 2020 or 2021, what's going to happen? What are the impacts going to be? So those are the sorts of things I'm working on. I'm very excited about it. And I'm hoping to stay connected with Brookings. Got a lot of projects going here with people and really excited to partner in the good work that's going on here in DuPont Circle. Well, Bradley, this has been a fascinating conversation. I want to thank you for sharing your time and your expertise today. Thanks, Fred. You can learn more about Bradley Hardy either at Brookings AEDU or on his website at bradleyhardy.com. Hey, listeners, want to ask an expert a question? You can by sending an email to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you attach an audio file, I'll play it on the air, and I'll get an expert to answer and include it in an upcoming episode. Thanks to all of you who have sent in questions already. And that does it for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria, brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts. My thanks to audio engineer and producer Gaston Reveredo, with assistance from Mark Holscher. Vanessa Sauter is the producer. Bill Finan does the book interviews. Design and web support comes from Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahin, and Rebecca Weiser. And thanks to David Nassar for his support. 
You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts and listen to it in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews. 